listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome back. I am recording this introduction half an hour before I go to get my second COVID vaccine. The Pfizer vaccine, I might add. I'm worried I'm going to get really sick, so I'm trying to squeeze this in. And that means that I won't probably do the usual 15 takes because I screw things up and say like too much. So you're just going to have to bear with me. I got a few things to share. Got some things I want to talk about. And then I'm going to I'll bring you in on this uh, interview. A really great guest to share with you, Claire Potter. Um, and you're going to like her. I mean, she is literally an intellectual who for 15 years has focused on writing and thinking with a general audience. I love that. I mean, I like these intellectuals. I like these academics, but I really like the ones that are trying to figure out how to make sense of it for me. And uh, Claire Potter, you'll, you're just going to like her. She's just, she's, she's talking about politics and, and in particular about the way alternative media hooked us on politics and messed up our democracy. And I mean, we're all sort of aware of that, but I, I must say that during COVID is when they got me. I mean, the screens won during COVID at the you know, the, the screens have one. It's not like COVID is over just because I'm getting a vaccine today. And I have found myself not only spending so much more time on screens, but also much more engaged in the low level political dialogue, like the snarky, like who's got a sex scandal with who and who wrote what tweet and how did AOC flame Ted Cruz, like all of that stuff that really isn't at the heart of policymaking and at the heart of how we collectively tax ourselves and then spend the money to create a social context that makes sense to us, which is what I really ought to be thinking about. Anyway, you're going to like, you're going to like Claire. All right. But in the meantime, I got a few things to share with you. The first thing is I want to share with you kind of a brilliant insight that I heard while eating my breakfast cereal two days ago, um, where my wife got an email from her boss that really threw her for a loop. And that night she was like, I'm mad. I got this email and this wasn't right. And I, you know, it made me look bad in front of some other people because it was CC to this. And ah. she was really frustrated. And she said, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let him have it. And then the next morning I got up and she was sitting at her computer and she said, I caught myself. I said, what do you mean? She said, I keep telling people that when somebody throws you a curveball, when somebody does something that upsets you or that you don't understand, she said, the thing to do is not to get angry, but to get curious. And she said, I just thought, why don't I just say, why don't I just write to him and say, why did you send that? What were you trying to accomplish? I mean, there may be, a, like, he's not a passive aggressive guy. Like there may be a real reason why he did it. Or he may look at that email. I thought to myself, he may look at that email and go like, oh gosh, that was stupid. Why did I send it? And he might apologize without ever having to be yelled at. Or he might explain it and it all makes sense. 
And that's the thing. So like, this is my new thing is when people throw you curveballs, especially people, you know, in our families and stuff like that. I think the thing is do is, is when we catch ourselves being angry to see if we can become curious instead. Why did you send that? Why do you ask that question? What were you hoping for from me when, when, when you invited me to do this? Where did, when did that first idea first occur, occur to you? I'm, I'm kind of curious. Like to try to find out what's behind an offense before you react to it. Okay, so like, look, that's just a piece of, I didn't invent that. I got it from my wife. I get lots of stuff from my wife. And the truth of the matter is, is that I don't credit her nearly enough. I take her ideas and I publicize them, literally. And people end up thinking that I am a really thoughtful man. And I'm sort of a thoughtful man, but not nearly as thoughtful as I sound because of who I'm married to. So let's just get that out of the way. All right. Second things is Easter just passed. And for those of us that left the faith, Easter's a weird holiday. Because um, everybody's sort of like, There's, it's so beautiful. And, you know, like, I'm glad we've got the bunny and the, the, the eggs and stuff to make, fun, make, make it fun. But Easter's a weird one because on some level, how can you argue with like new life and, you know, joy and resurrection? And yet, like, you know, as I always say, like, you know, grace and resurrection are the, you know, are kind of the, the, the bright side of original sin and hell and uh, unmerited favor. Uh, you know, like the, the, the problem with grace is the unmerited part, like the idea that we're all worthless pieces of garbage. Um, anyway, among the weird things on Easter is, is that all my Christian friends and family members will say things to me like, you know, they just, he is risen. And, you know, and I remember in the church, you know, you go, he is risen. He is risen indeed. And um, so the other day I was over uh, on Easter, I was with my family, um, my, M- Marty and, and my daughter Miranda and, and her husband, Tyler, kind of like, you know, and, and, and Maya, my granddaughter, who she's not really just my family. She is, she is the child of the world. Um, as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, and all of a sudden it hit me. And I looked at them and I said, he is mythical. And my wife smiled at me and she said, he is mythical indeed. And I know that really wouldn't fly with my Christian friends and family, but it's kind of a cool thing to say when you really think about it. Um, Because it's not saying Jesus is a bad idea or a bad role model. Um, or, you know, that we don't understand why people project all of their most cherished values onto him and then worship him. Like that's all very normal and human. Um, it's just to say that he's a good myth and Easter is a, is a good story. And, uh, you know, like the idea of the hero coming back from the dead is a pretty familiar one to us humans. So, it, but just like embrace it. Like he is mythical. He is mythical indeed. So anyway, I liked it a lot. I think I'm going to use it from now on um, in the right circumstances. And I just wanted to share it for what it's worth. All right. Speaking of sharing things for what they're worth and some things are worth more than others. I'm going to share with you my conversation with Claire Potter, um, who is a professor um, 
at the New School for Social Research, which as growing up in a sociologist family, um, the New School isn't really that new anymore, but it's still massively hip and, you know, kind of, I don't know, prestigious. I was impressed. And she writes for everybody, the, the, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Village Voice, all that stuff, Gar- The Guardian. And I just like her a ton. And I liked talking to her. I had never met her before this conversation. So this will be another one in which you will sort of see a friendship being born as, as we speak. So here's me and Claire. And, and here's the other thing is I've got a great quote for you. A wonderful quote for you on the other side. A nice long one. It's juicy. You're going to dig it. So, you know, I'm not trying to get you to come on the other side, but I'll see you on the other side. Thanks for doing this. Hey, do, my pleasure, do, Bart. Do you, do you do this stuff all the time? Are you, are you just like podcast, you know, all over everything? Well, I have been because, of course, I had a book come out last summer, um, last July, called Political Junkies. So that kind of got me on the radio and podcast circuit. Um, and then I had my own podcast for a year. It's in uh, it's in abeyance now because um, we're trying to raise some money for it. Um, but I love podcasting. Um, I think it's a great way to get to a range of people, um, who you wouldn't ordinarily get to talk to. Um, and I think it's, it's a wonderful way to sort of, um, take ideas to audiences who are in a position to receive them, um, openly because they've chosen to listen to you. You know, it's really interesting. I am finding that podcasts are strangely useful for listening to people who think differently than you do. Um, There's something weird. There's something weird about like the controlled nature of it. The idea that I turn it on when I want to, and I can turn it off. It's different than watching a broadcast or listening to NPR or any kind of radio that's coming at you in their time. Yeah, I agree with you. I also think that, you know, Americans spend a lot of time in cars and they haven't in the past year. Um, But certainly when I was driving back and forth between our apartment in New York and our place in Massachusetts, which is where my spouse lives most of the time, that's, you know, between a two and a half and a three and a half hour drive. You can run through the cycle on NPR pretty quickly. So I used to use that opportunity actually to go further um, and listen to people like Laura Ingram and Ben Shapiro and, you know, really um, uh, broadcasters who are out there on the right. And I think if I hadn't been trapped in the car with a lot of time to kill, I would not have prioritized that. Uh, yeah. But it really, really helped me in writing my book about alternative media, because I think a lot of people write about right-wing media who don't really spend that much time listening to it or engaging with it or engaging with the audiences that like it. Um, So it was very helpful to me to really think deeply about the strong connection that conservative broadcasters build with their audiences and try to understand that. And that in turn gives me a platform to 
really be more conversational and more open to uh, the ideas that many conservatives bring to the table. It's always funny to me when I'm around more liberal folks and they don't understand the strong connection that conservative broadcasters have with their audiences or, or vice versa, because I yeah. grew up in church. You know, I grew right. up, I grew up in a place where certain kinds of voices and certain kinds of certain levels of certainty and, yes. and, and authority um, really play well. And, yeah. I, and so I, you know, I'm, I'm always surprised that people are, are surprised. I'm like, well, mm-hmm. th- this has been going on as long as there have been human tribes. Um, right. Well, I think that's true. I also think sound builds a particular kind of community um, and a particular kind of intimacy between the broadcaster and the audience. So if you listen to someone like Rush Limbaugh, for example, you know, for a very long time, he has been creating nicknames for his audience. Um, they have a sort of coded language that they speak to each other in. It's extremely intimate. And I think, you know, it really, I think talk radio and conservative podcasting in many ways built the basis for creating a community around Donald Trump. Because if you've ever gone to a Trump rally, which I have, um, the first thing you notice is the connection he has with his audience, uh, the love they have for him, and he reflects that affection back to them. It's a very, very intimate bond. And I remember once I was on the Brian Lehrer show and someone in the audience said, you know, how can these people stand him? And I said, you know, the only reason you're asking that question is because you've actually never been to a Trump rally. If you went to a Trump rally, you would understand it. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, it's funny, like long before it got political, I think the first, the first voice, like s- sort of secular voice that I saw own its audience, um, was Howard Stern when mm-hmm. I was a kid growing up. Yep. Um, I, I couldn't believe how much the people who listened to Howard Stern loved him. And identified yep. with him, yeah. And uh, and so, yeah, it, it's a, it's a phenomenon that it's not it's not new, right? Well, and it, I mean, you can take it all the way back to Larry King, you know, who was broadcasting in the middle of the night in the late fifties and early sixties, and actually for a rather prolonged period of time. Well, who's listening to the radio in the middle of the night? Working people. And so, <laughs> there is this sort of um, specifically, I think. Um, working class bond um, with radio. I think you really see it taking shape in sports radios communities um, where there are all these people who are unbelievably knowledgeable about sports um, calling in to debate, you know, the game that just happened um, and so on. But I think drawing the distinction between the, the secular and the sacred is really important because you see that playing out on the left as well. Why do people tune into Rachel Maddow to explain the things that have happened that day that they already know, right? There's nothing on the Rachel Maddow show that note that the audience doesn't know before they've turned on the television. And I think that bond, while it is secular, it's sacred in the sense that she breeds a kind of trust in a particular audience 
And they believe that they will learn what they already know over again, and they will leave that show understanding those things better. So how did you learn about all this stuff? Like, oh, that's what, what a really it, good question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a really good question. Well, you know, one of the ways I learned about um, how productive and pleasurable it is to make connections across differences is that I spent three months of my childhood every summer in Twin Falls, Idaho, Southern Idaho, um, which is an area that was very, very different from where I grew up in Philadelphia. Um, it was where my mother grew up. And we had a great many friends. And, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, you didn't really think about people as split on political lines. I mean, you had Nixon voters and Humphrey voters, but you didn't think of conservatism or being a liberal as a way of life. And so my friends and I, we were just friends and we loved each other and took care of each other. And um, then, you know, at the end of the summer, I would go back to my world in Philadelphia. But I've never regarded conservatives as a separate breed of people or um, Christians as a separate breed of people who I, you know, are incomprehensible to me. And, and I would say, in terms of the ways that Christianity and religion uh, became a much bigger factor in American life and American politics in the 70s and 80s. I would also say the Idaho experience was big because I grew up around a lot of Mormons. Um, and back then, the Mormon church was extremely conservative in terms of its approach to the world. Um, As opposed to their wild liberalism now? Right. Well, you know, what's, <laughs> what's interesting about Mormonism now, if you look at someone like Mitt Romney, say, you know, Mitt Romney and his um, principled votes um, that he's taken in relation to the various impeachments of Donald Trump is really grounded in his faith. Um, and, and so what, what I really see in Mormonism now is, first of all, it has dropped some of the unpleasant baggage that it had back in the 60s and 70s. It's dropped the racism. It's much more open to female authority and so on and so forth. Um, but it's also in some ways a much more global religion. Um, so that Mormons um, are in some ways in their own communities far more sophisticated than a great many of their neighbors. They've gone on missions. Um, they, they are interested in the spread of Mormonism around the world. Um, so they're very internationally sophisticated people. And I actually think that's been a big change. Whereas, you know, um, uh, other forms of evangelicism um, while they are international, while they do fund missions abroad, it isn't exactly the core mission of the faith to do that. Um, but it is in Mormonism. So, oh, yeah. you know, so I, I actually think that that makes, I, I guess, I was about to say that makes Mormons very interesting to me. But the truth is, I'm really interested in people. <laughs> and I'm interested in how they think. You know, it's funny, you, you, you toss that off. And I think like, that's a, I'm finding that that's a rarer quality than I thought. Mm. Um, mm. The cu curiosity um, mm. about other people, um, asking questions of other people, not to like win an argument, but because you're yeah. really actually interested in how they think. Um, yeah. 
it's it's interesting because I, I do I counsel a lot of folks who are depressed and anxious. Mm. And one of the characteristics of depression is that people sort of lose their appetite or their interest in other people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and they feel guilty about it. They feel bad about it, but they're just they're they're not nothing nothing can interest them. Um, yeah. It, it's it's almost like when you're nauseous and and no food tastes good to you. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm but I'm finding that like I feel like that's almost a national malady right now, a lack of curiosity. I think that's true. I think it has a lot to do with how much anger has been cultivated on the left and the right. I think anger is one of those emotions that causes people to fend off reality or fend off what's in front of them. I think um, the other thing I think about a lot, and you know, you're asking, how did I get to this place? One of my best friends is a woman named Wendy Davis, who's an assistant rowing coach uh, at the University of Tennessee. But I knew her back in Middletown, Connecticut. And when I first met her, she'd been brought into our group of women who was working out. And we were just working out and chatting and abortion came up. And I sort of flipped off a ridiculous comment in which I said, I can't imagine why anybody would be against abortion. And Wendy looked at me and said, well, I am. I am very much against abortion. And it stopped me dead, not only because I had done something socially completely wrong, but because here was someone who had been an Olympic rower, who was the head coach at Yale, who was an admirable person, who was perfectly nice, and I had just stepped on her face, basically. And I sort of withdrew and I apologized. I said, I am so sorry I said that. I don't know what came over me. And we instantly became friends, instantly. Um, and Wendy's very conservative. She is a woman of deep and profound faith. Um, and so we began to explore a lot of the ways in which we were similar and different. And, and I guess part of what I'm coming around to is it's not just that I was curious about her. Um, what that moment did was cause me to be curious about myself. Why had I needed to say that thing at a, at a moment when, you know, why had I presumed that everyone around me was the same as me? And, and then I also admired her courage because it's not easy in a social situation where you don't know people to say, no, I'm not like you. Right. And and I, I deeply admired that courage. And it made me it made me like her instantly just for that. <laughs> you know, and, and it yeah. made me think this is somebody I need to be friends with. Um, but but it's been a huge gift to me, um, particularly as the country has become more and more polarized, um, to have this very dear friend with whom I can talk about anything politically in ways that aren't just an echo chamber type of conversation. Did you ever figure out, you know, you said like, why did I feel the need to say that? Did you ever figure out like why yeah. you did? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, it was a kind of establishing myself, right? Like I'm such a righteous person. And if you're not, you know, I'm better than you. I mean, I think I think it was a very sort of reflexive power move in the conversation in some ways. I also think it was 
deeply careless in a way that we can become deeply careless if we are always around people who are more more or less the same as we are. Um, We stop thinking about what are some principled reasons why somebody might be morally opposed to abortion. Um, and, And frankly, it was ignorance on my part. Um, that I simply presumed that those those moral principles didn't exist. That it, you know, it's just a political thing that that dumb people believe. Um, and and so that really took me back on myself that I could not, particularly because I'm a historian, right, and I'm responsible for writing about the past, that I had failed to imagine someone else's ethical and moral world. Um, and. And which in uh, some ways, is, re- in some ways is it is you really had forgotten something because like right. back in Idaho, back in Idaho, Idaho, I'm guessing you, you wouldn't have, right. have, have flipped off and said, hey, how could any sane person be against this? Because you would have known you were surrounded right. by people. Yeah. Yep. That's absolutely right. And I, and I also think that, you know, we could talk about the changes in technology that have made us all more extreme in our views um, and created the need to be more vigilant about why we think about things the way we do. But, you know, back in Idaho, um, abortion wasn't a political thing until after Roe v. Wade. You know, so I had a whole chunk of my life where um, where abortion was not as contentious an issue. It became a contentious issue and I think there are there are ways that we sometimes just seamlessly absorb attitudes that seem to fit with our worldview without thinking about what the consequences might be for our relationships with other people. So I spend a lot of time thinking about the consequences of our relationships with other people for all kinds of things. Um, yeah. And in some ways, that's what brings me to this conversation because I'm sort of on a quest right now to figure out what people are learning in their lives that I can use to build better relationships in mine. Mm-hmm. And and I, I, I feel like you have you have been on something here for the last few years, you know, political junkies, the book sort of being Mm -hmm. a distillation of 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 an idea or a set of ideas around something that's like change that we have to adjust to if we're going to have better relations, if we're going to keep having decent relationships. Yeah. Um, What's changed and, and what adjustment do you think we need to make to it? Well, I think one of the things that has changed that, we all know about, but we sometimes downplay the significance of, is because we live most of our lives on the internet now, we are directed by algorithms to certain kinds of content, certain kinds of people, um, certain kinds of conversation, which inevitably steers us away from other kinds of content, other kinds of people, and other kinds of conversation. And I think one of the things that everybody has to do is pay close attention to their media diet and what they are choosing and what is simply being given to them. Um, So um, one of the new social media apps I'm enjoying right now is Clubhouse. 
And one of the things you can do on Clubhouse is just drop into actual conversations people are having, like you and I are talking now. And so I peeled through Clubhouse and I found a bunch of young Republicans who were in the middle of a conversation about the future of the party and just listen to them for 45 minutes. Didn't ask them any questions, didn't jump onto the stage or anything like that. And part of what was fascinating to me is their deep concern about extremism and what that means for the future of the party. I was also interested in their deep concern for the party's failure to attract sufficient numbers of voters of color. And they weren't interested in that as an election problem. They were interested in that as a moral problem. Um, (laughs) I was also really interested to hear them talk about the the elected officials who they admired, like they were saying, we need more Susan Collinses in the party. We need someone like Joe Manchin. And they went on and on about Joe Manchin and how he manages to sort of speak to the center while also maintaining the principles of the Democratic Party. And Um, probably for both those people too, there's a sense in which people are identifying with them because they are not just going with the flow of their political identity. Exactly. I think that's absolutely right. And also they're refusing the extremism um, on both sides that insists there's only one right way of doing things. Um, And I mean, Susan Collins got into a lot of trouble after the last impeachment and after the Kavanaugh hearings and was targeted um, by by Democratic organizers, ton of money raised to unseat her. I actually worked on the campaign of the woman who was running against her. And it was kind of fascinating to talk to people from Maine because they would say, oh, yes, totally voting for Joe Biden. And I'd say, and what about the Senate race? And they, they would sort of pause and they would say, Susan Collins has represented us for a long time. I really trust her. And, you know, so I learned very early on, there's going to be a lot of ticket splitting in Maine. And part of what that said to me is that Maine voters weren't buying it, that you take a bad vote that, you know, a lot of people don't like, and you should be just be unseated. Um, and that really made me admire them. And, and I thought about these kids in, in that same way. They are sort of yearning for a political life where they can be conservatives, but not be overwhelmed by the kinds of extremism that we saw in the Capitol on January 6th. I think that, and, and if there's anything that I think, like when I, when I think about what's changed, I think, and maybe it's just a, 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 what happens when you get to late democracy and the margins are 49 to 51 on everything. Um, but I, I feel like it used to be that you could be really liberal on a lot of things and then like have this one issue in which you, you know, like I, I used to know these flaming liberals, but they were very religious. And so like they would, mm-hmm. they were, they were, they were liberal about everything except abortion or they were li- mm-hmm. li- liberal about everything mm-hmm. except capital punishment. Um, right. I, and, and I feel like now what, what I sense is, is that because it's kind of winner take all, um, and you just, you just want to win the next election. Mm-hmm. That that it's much more a block vote. Like, yeah, w- it, it, we're either for all, like, we're either for 
all conservative on every issue or we're all liberal on every issue, but you're not, you, you know, you weaken our, you weaken the cause if you break ranks on anything. Yeah. And so yeah. it, it used to be that you could actually have a nuanced conversation and a conservative, a liberal would go like, wow, you know, we don't agree on much, but we agree on that. But now mm-hmm. I don't think like you're, a, it's not good. Like if, if Barack Obama had come up with a healthcare policy that every Republican loved, they still would have voted against him because they were like, well, we need to win the next election. Am I wrong? Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't I don't think you're wrong and I think part of what has happened is across the board media emphasizes those absolutes in part because it makes their platforms very sticky um and in part because a lot of it, it, I don't I don't even know which comes first the chicken or the egg but a lot of people are not knowledgeable about or interested in how diverse both parties are. Um, And I realize I'm going on and on about conservatives all the time. But, you know, when I went to Conservative Political Action Conference back in 2018, one of the most interesting places to be was the, you know, the big exhibit hall, because you could see that there were a range of impulses within conservatism. And now this is right in the middle of Trumpism. Um, You know, Matt Schlapp is possibly one of the Trumpiest people on the planet. And yet you had all of these sort of pop-up nonprofits. There was one that was working on abolishing the death penalty. Right. And I interviewed this guy and I said, you know, normally we think of the death penalty as something that conservatives are for. Why are you against the death penalty? And he said, well, first of all, I believe human life is sacred and I'm anti-abortion. So for me, it follows that I'm against the death penalty. And he said, secondly, I'm a libertarian. And if you look at the kind of money that we spend on prosecuting um, these death penalty cases. He said, you know, that is tax money. People don't need to be taxed to have that money spent over the course of 20 or 30 years to put somebody to death. That is absolutely wrong. And so these sort of two impulses within conservatism had come together for him um, in such a way, and he was an ex-policeman, um, that he had put together this nonprofit to get rid of the death penalty in Virginia. And I believe, in fact, it's been successful. <laughs> so normally we think about that as a very progressive thing. We could either say there are progressive impulses within conservatism, or we could say there are conservative moral and ethical impulses that drive people in a direction that we can all agree on. So, so- so when you see something like that, like that's like a hopeful sign of non-complete, you have to adopt an entire political, a whole cloth political right. identity. Right. But that's a, that's a, that's an exception. Like that's, that's an exceptional uh, thing. Like, do you, see, do you, do you feel like, do you feel like there's any way for like everyday people to recapture the idea of defining themselves politically in a more nuanced way? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think one of the things I would go back to is Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, uh, in which he talks about the ways that the various structures of community have dissolved. 
And of course, the title uh, for Bowling Alone comes from a piece of his analysis, which he did on bowling leagues, um, in which he noted that there are more people bowling than ever, but actually bowling alleys are closing down. And now this was back in the 1990s. Bowling alleys were closing down because nobody wanted to join leagues anymore. And so what he looked at were the ways that the bowling league not only brought people together from all kinds of random ideological positions, but that part of being in a bowling league was to hang out at the alley afterwards and eat pizza and drink beer and talk to people. And so the reason the bowling alleys were going under is nobody was doing that anymore. But the larger effect of it was that people's um, contacts and deep conversation with people unlike them, um, ideological, but like them because they all love to bowl, um, were actually disappearing. Or, or um, you know, and, and it's funny because churches were the same, uh, you know, like his, his analysis was, as I remember it was, yeah, bowling alleys, churches, like people are not, they're spending more time at home yeah. alone watching TV um, yeah. and they're not being together. What's funny about those things is you actually would sit around at the bowling alley with people who were largely like you, mm-hmm. but in any group of people that are all lockstep, like there's the ones, because we agree on all the major stuff. Like when I went to church, we never had any conversations about like the existence of God. Everybody agreed on that one, but yeah. like you'd get into arguments over stuff a, a little bit deeper into it. And yep. so the, the idea is you would become aware in those arguments or conversations that it wasn't it, – like, that saying you were a Christian or saying you were a humanist or saying you were anything, that that didn't really identify you very clearly when you were with other humanists. You ha- right. Then that's where the nuance emerged. Right. And so right. – but and, – and so I think there's something – even just about people being together with people that are kind of like them, that still highlights, y- 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 tell me more. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I, you know, I also think, and, and there are all kinds of ways in which certain kinds of evangelicism have led people in the wrong direction toward white supremacy, toward um, some of these militia groups and so on. Often, often those groups are, um, using religion in very, very narrow ways um, to, to shore up a set of worldviews that, that are pretty violent and destructive. But I think if you, if you look at the basic principle of, of faith, um, which is that God loves all of us, full stop, and that if you start there, we actually all do have something in common. And and there is a kind of basis for the kinds of trust you you might want to have in play to be open to somebody else's ideas. Claire, you didn't grow up in church, did you? Well, I I actually because uh, if you did, think if you think, little. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, yeah, well, I was a Presbyterian, which is which in some ways is like not being a Christian at all. But um, uh, but but yes, in fact, I attended church until I was in the in the ninth or tenth grade. I probably didn't stop attending church completely until I was in college. Um, and, but, but I would also say that, you know, back to my friend, Wendy, she, she was the one that really sort of brought me back around, um, to being interested in the divine 
as as something that is simply present in our lives and and you can decide what you want to do with that but that if if in fact um you are willing to to grapple with the divine it opens up a range of possibilities um that yeah no the, the reason i mean yeah. You know, I mean, I spent 30 years in that world and then like deconverted and, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm so far gone from that, not in an angry or bitter yeah. way, but just like, yeah. but, 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 but it was just when you said like, you know, the basis of religion is that God loves everybody full stop. And I thought like, <laughs> that, that's not how you build a political movement uh, or, or a religious movement that like most churches are defined by who God loves. That's us. And who right. God doesn't love as much. That's them. And we yeah. try to recruit people to go from them to us in order that God will love them and save them. Because if you're not with us, he surely won't. Yeah. Um, well, and, and this is where actually I think Catholicism is really interesting. And Catholicism is responsible for, for a great many difficult things in the world. But, you know, if you look at a politician like Joe Biden, for example, he's, he's a man of extraordinary faith who also does not think in the ways you just described. As far as he's concerned, his faith gives him a job to do in the world. Right. And he's responsible for doing it well. Um, and, and it's a very, it is, it, it is a way of, of projecting your faith into the world that is both simple and complex. Um, but, it, but it is what has created in him, I think, the, the zeal for a lifetime of public service that, that is genuine and sets him apart from some of the younger politicians um, who seem to be approaching political life in more cynical ways, which then I think drives them toward division um, as a as a strategy for engaging people. You sound like a a hopeful person. Like even in this conversation, you sound hopeful about the political conversation in this country. Like you know, you I mean, you wrote this book about how the alternative media messed us up. Yep. And, and how the technology messed us up and how the algorithms messed us up and divided us and, 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 and created this kind of very toxic environment. But you like, I mean, I watched that movie. Uh, oh gosh, what was it? Um, uh, the social sure. dilemma. It's called the social oh, dilemma. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. And it, and, and it sort of graphically made some of the points that you were making about the way in which we're being driven into silos. Yeah. Um, and that we're and 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 that and that they figured out that getting keeping us scared and angry is much more lucrative than right. um, keeping us educated or informed. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, and yet you, you you sound hopeful, and I guess I'm like, can you give me some reason? Sure. Um, I think one of the reasons I'm hopeful is that I've been a university teacher for for thirty years, and there's nothing that makes you more hopeful than seeing a new class of students show up at the beginning of the semester. You know, they've signed up for your class because they saw something in the catalog that they that excited them and they show up open and ready to learn. And I think the, that suggests to me that this is a possibility for everybody because students don't come from nowhere, you know. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> they, but wait, 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 stop. First of all, first of all, you go, college students... At, at, at a fancy college, give me hope because like um, that every, every, that's that's open for everyone. And I'm like, y- you know, that's not true. And those students well, don't represent in any way 
um, the majority of America. Like no, they're the they elite. Don't. Those are the rich kids. I, I agree with you. But on the other hand, um, if you do the things I do, you spend a lot of time traveling around meeting a lot of different kinds of kids. So I've done, I've done sessions at community colleges. I've done sessions at, you know, schools for troubled teens. I've did, you know, um, so, so the education environment is very, is various. Um, and if, if you travel around through it, um, like I remember the, um, the seminar I gave at the school for troubled teens and it was all of these girls who had (laughs) been in just terrible kinds of trouble. I mean, I don't mean to laugh, but terrible, terrible kinds of trouble. And this was not the Baldwin school. This was not the Baldwin school. (laughs) And, you know, I remember sitting with them and giving my little talk and they were really kind of like cynical and poking at me and so on. But in that, they really wanted to know things. They really wanted to engage. And I think part of what social media and other kinds of electronic media have created, um, I would say in some ways purposely, is um, this this urge for selective engagement, right? To, to go to something when you already know what's there and that you're going to enjoy it. I mean, look at, look at something like Netflix, right? You turn on Netflix and all of a sudden it's like, here are some things for you based on your past choices. They never say, you made a bunch of past choices. How about something completely different? Claire? Here's something we think right. you should. Here's something we think right. you should watch. Right? Have you have you considered diversifying yeah. your media diet, Claire? You've spent um, way too much time on those things. <laughs> right. But I think I think with students, I, you know, partly it's that young people in general are very very eager for something else. Um, there and particularly in the moment we are in right now, there was an article in the New York Times today about how kids globally are depressed, and they they believe that there's no point to doing anything because the whole world has fallen apart, and no one can give them any reassurance that things are going to be okay, yeah, or they feel you know that it's. Yeah, that it's worth going to school because, you know, someday you'll have a job. And they're like, what job? Nobody has any jobs now, right? And so so I do think that spending time with the young um, is, for, it, for me, it keeps me hopeful because they are all coming from some context. They're coming from some town, some family, some church, somewhere, some country, um, and they're already formed, and then they show up, and yeah, yeah. and they're I, open. I, you know, I, I worked on college campuses as a chaplain, as a humanist chaplain. Mm-hmm. You know, kind mm-hmm. of engaging students as a spiritual guide. You know, secular students, but you right. know, trying to help them figure out like what's it all about, how do you make yeah. the most of this life, and all that stuff. And so, as a result, I formed the kind of relationships where I I still know these students five and ten years later. Like they come back. Yep. Yep. And, yep. Uh, and, and, and after they've been working at that brokerage house for five years or after they've been, yep. you know, after they, after they've been screwed over by the first tech company they worked for, or it yep. is amazing how quickly they get siloed mm-hmm. emotionally, spiritually, politically after yeah. that, after that universe 
university experience. You know, after the, yeah. you know, and, and, and the other weird thing is like, oh, when I'm on a campus at a place like USC, they're siloed mm-hmm. pretty early into the college experience. I mean, if you, if you join the fraternity sure. culture, you never meet anybody who's not in a fraternity. You never date a girl who's not in a sorority. If you're an athlete, you never, you never hang out with anyone who's not an athlete. Um, yep. it's, and, and so I, like, I, I'm really like, I'm deeply concerned, um, about exactly the stuff like like I like your political junkies book. I'm like yeah, like the 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 analysis is where I where I'm going. Yes, amen. I'm with you. Um, right. But what I'm what I'm I'm really trying to figure out is I is I feel like it almost takes a heroic person like your friend in that rowing clubhouse um, mm-hmm. who said like I feel like you almost it, it takes a real personal commitment to to cross over and to step out and to actually engage somebody who's different from yourself in a conversation about politics. And I, I feel like you you are that person. And I guess what yeah. I'm wondering is like, do you like do you get any tips? Um sure. I, you know, I would say one thing I would suggest everybody do is, and, you know, people are going to think this is crazy, but in the next election cycle, sign up to work on someone's campaign. One of the most fascinating experiences I had was working for Elizabeth Warren in New Hampshire and going from house to house on foot. So this is like pre-COVID, going from house to house and talking to people about the candidates. And, you know, they usually give you a list that they imagine will be sympathetic to your candidate, but those, those lists are always wrong. <laughs> so you end up talking, you know, I ended up talking to people who were supporting Trump, people who were supporting Buttigieg, and actually having real conversations with people, it was my takeaway from working on that campaign and, and conversations with people in which somebody who was a Trump re- supporter would then reveal like there was this guy who who fixed appliances for a living. And because of the tariffs on Chinese goods, um, people weren't buying new appliances anymore. So actually his business was booming. And he said, you know, I don't care about most of these things, but that tariff was a really good idea and I'm making money again. So I'm, I'm going to vote for the guy. And just having that little window into the fact that This guy was not a relentlessly ideological person. He was a real thinker. And he was thinking about how did the economy change to benefit me? What happened? And what do I want going forward? I think having those conversations with people reassured me in many ways that there were a range of people who did not think as I did, who were nevertheless extraordinarily thoughtful. and, and, you know, we're friends on a certain level. We became friendly in that moment. And, and campaigning kind of got you in front of people who you wouldn't find in your natural daily life. Absolutely. And then, you know, once, once the COVID lockdowns began, we were doing this by phone. I think the thing that a lot of people like doing is sending postcards. And I, I think in many ways, that's completely and utterly pointless, even though it makes people feel like they're doing the right thing. When you actually engage someone on the telephone, they will tell you about their hopes and fears. 
um, and they will they will tell you what they care about. And that that is the kind of connection that we're never going to fully get on social media as we go from person to person to person who thinks exactly like we do. And how do we know they think exactly as we do? Because we've been sent there by Facebook, um, you know. And so, yeah, I would just say, you know, tell people to shake up their lives a little bit, whatever that means. For me, no. it was campaigning. But, but do something different. That's so remarkable. You know? I, it's funny. I was just listening to The Daily, The New York Times, that, and, the guy, and they were reading this article about this, this Indian journalist, Indian American journalist who had gone back to Bombay and he had tracked down the people that are making all the scam calls. Right. And right. He, got, he got a hacker to hack in. So he was listening to scam calls. Wow. Wow, and that's it, great. It's, it's devastatingly sad to listen to. You yeah. know, the, these people yeah. preying on old old people or yep. lonely people or yep. you know, and um but what was remarkable to me was how long people were willing to engage with a person who had called them on the phone. Right. If if the person, you know, because the scammers would just say like, "I see it's your birthday yesterday, happy birthday," and they were, yep. like, oh, "Thank you," and 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 so <laughs> the idea, you know, the idea that you could call strangers on a campaign call and that people would actually engage you in conversation, I go like, people have no idea how how much loneliness there is out there, yep. and so I don't think you're actually far off when you say, and I'm not even sure it has to be a political campaign. I think you could you could join a campaign for the SPCA to, you know, for, for neutering dogs. And yeah. if you played your cards right, you'd still end up talking to a lot of people who were different than you. Yep. And if, yep. and if you were open to it, the conversation could take you somewhere. Yeah. Um, I think so I like that. I think Shake up your life. Right. Shake up your life yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. I would also say, you know, back to the, back to the college thing. Um, one of the things that I became aware of I don't know, 20 years ago or so, is that increasingly private colleges were admitting students who couldn't really pay for college. And it, you know, it has not only gotten us into a situation where a great many students are carrying a lot of debt for their education, but it got us into a situation where there is a growing number of students in college who are homeless who rely on food banks, um, who go hungry, um, who don't get good health care, um, who don't have enough, who, they pay their tuition and then they don't have enough money to buy the books. So they don't do as well as they could if they were fully supported. And so one of the things I've become very aware of is that even in settings that seem elite, there are all kinds, there's all kinds of pain that you're not seeing, um, in part because the students go to great lengths to hide it. Um, I had a, I had a student, a graduate student a couple of years ago, well, I guess last year, and he, he left during the pandemic and probably will not return, but he wrote me a long email explaining that the entire time he had been at the new school, he was homeless. And that there was a community of several hundred new school students who actually lived at the school and in the NYU library, where they also have privileges. Um, and that this is just routine at the university that I teach at. I had no idea. 
And so I would also urge people, wherever they are positioned, to look around and dig a little deeper into what's going on around them. Um, because you will learn perhaps that the exclusive atmosphere that you're in um, is a lot more complex um, and, uh, you know, has the same social inequalities that people are struggling with outside the institution. Yeah. I, I think in almost all of our lives, you know, when we go, w- the restaurants that we go to, you know, the, the bus, the bus people, the, the, the waiters, the, the bus driver, you know, if you, that there are people in our everyday lives who are in very different socioeconomic and political and ideological situations than we are that, it's just really hard for people to cross. It's it's hard to it's hard to start that conversation, right? And I actually think this is one thing that the pandemic might open the door to, because I think there are a great many people who are more aware than they ever have been of, you know, that a lot of people who who are in a working class position just died, and the institutions that they were working for more or less let them die. Um, The government let them die. (laughs) We let them die. Um, We didn't know we were letting them die, but we did. And so I think, you know, and this again is me being hopeful, is how could we actually take that realization and not shut the door on it? How could we actually take that and say, this should not happen again. People should not be left alone without protection, without health care, to simply die of a disease that those of us who have a second home in the country can protect ourselves from. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I want to be hopeful. But, you know, I mean, my impression is that you don't think you don't lay all the blame for this at the feet of social media and the internet. You, you don't think that's, that's, that's the main culprit. No, I, I really don't. Um, although I would say, and, and Jaron Lanier's uh, book on, you know, 10 reasons you should delete your social media accounts is very good on this. Um, the engineering of social media is predeterminative. What's not predeterminative is that we, should use that for as our sole channel of communication with others right and and so i would i would advocate for people thinking about spending the kind of time in real life settings with other people when we can um that they now spend on social media. And I understand a lot of people, for example, like Facebook because it keeps them up to date with what their grandchildren are doing and what their friends are doing. But let me also say that when I open Facebook and find that a friend of mine has died, and that's how I find out on Facebook, I find it alarming. And it sends me back to a time when when someone died, you would make phone calls. And you would call someone on the phone and let them know in person. Um, and it, it required a different level of engagement. It required a different level of engagement. And, and, and so that's, now that's we why have I don't understand. Shortcuts, that's, and that's know? why I don't understand how you're hopeful because water always finds the path of least resistance and people always take the shortcut. And even if it's not in our best interests, you know, that was what bowling alone way back then yeah. was all about. It's like television's not in our best interest, but we're going to watch it. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so, I think, so, you know, a, I think there's a whole, there's another way of thinking, and this could be like a whole different podcast. One of the things I'm curious about is whether people will rethink the nature of and their commitments to work once the pandemic is over. Because I think, you know, driving work into people's homes, um, putting people, millions of people on extended periods of unemployment um, and so on, you know, this this is a real opportunity to rethink the ways that work has taken over our lives. Um, and, you know, I became at a certain point very resentful when I was teaching on Zoom and going to meetings on Zoom and so on, that basically my home had become my workspace. And I'd always had pretty solid boundaries between the two. But then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, they, you haven't had solid boundaries between the two. You know, sometimes you sit up catching up on your email until nine or 10 o'clock at night. That's not a boundary. Um, and so I think there are some ways in which not just social media, but technology in general has allowed us to commit more and more and more of our best selves to work um, and shifted it away from those things like making a phone call. You know, one of the lessons to take away from political junkies is that our descent into, into alternative media hell resulted from a series of choices. They, and they weren't all choices that were made by other people, you know? So that, you know, I would say the emergence of, say, a Breitbart, you know, that, that was Andrew Breitbart's decision to do that. Um, that was the people who funded him and made Breitbart ubiquitous um, in the conservative media sphere. But it is a choice whether you read Breitbart or not. It is, it is a choice whether you spend hours and hours and hours on subreddits talking to people you don't know and will never meet as if that is, you know, your main community, whether you do that or whether you, you know, go out and join a, a local civic club or, you know, um, volunteer to deliver meals on wheels. And I think, um, I know, but you wouldn't what say I, that. I mean, you wouldn't say that to a bunch of alcoholics. You wouldn't go like, "Look, I, I'm very confident that we're going to overcome drug addiction in this country because it's a choice." Right. And, and hey, right. just stop, just stop making that choice, you alcoholics and you, you, you heroin addicts and you opioid addicts. And they would look back at you and go, "Like, do you think it's that simple?" Right. And 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 of course it isn't. And you're you're right. And I actually think the addiction metaphor is a really good one because one of the things we know about social media is that, you know, as soon as you open your computer, endorphins start firing off it in your brain. So there is there is a piece of the addiction to media um, that that people are not fully in control of. Um, but I also think, and you know. We haven't really touched on this, but I'm a meditator. Um, and one of the things meditation, much like prayer, asks you to do is to be conscious of what you are thinking and feeling in the moment. Um, and the more you do it, the more it, you might not change everything in your life, but you become more and more aware of why you're doing what you're doing. Like, why am I still sitting here on the computer at eight o'clock at night, doom scrolling through Twitter? Um, maybe I should go read a book. Um, and, and I agree with you. It's not like a plan to reform society, but I do think people should be urged to understand that they have 
some control over their lives. I mean, I, there's a young person in my family network who is an addict. Um, and, you know, you go through a lot with that. But, but part of what I'm so proud of her about is that on a certain level, the, the illness of addiction is something she has learned to manage, right? She's never not going to be an addict. But she has, in fact, put a tremendous amount of work into managing what it means to be an addict and to, to be aware of how that affects other people, right? And that's, that's the sort of final thing I would say about it. I think Americans are at, at a kind of nadir of understanding how what they do and what they say reverberate affects out. other people yeah yeah exactly okay so yeah. I, i'm gonna like i've got one question that like is as practical as the day is long and Great. i and you are like the best person i can think of in my world to ask this question of okay wow because I, yes i know i know <laughs> <laughs> i know it's big, big drum roll yeah okay. if i decide that i want to eat healthier I call a nutritionist and I say, help me shape a, a, a healthy diet. Like if I decided that I wanted to be the more responsible, I, I understand that the way I think and the way I talk is going to affect mm -hmm. the people around me. I understand that I'm a citizen of a, of a, of a, of a democracy teetering on the edge. And I want to, I want to, I want to have a healthy media diet. Mm -hmm. What do I do? What Give, do you do? Yeah, help me well, have a weirdly, healthy media diet. <laughs> weirdly, Silicon Valley has become very concerned about this. Um, I suspect because it's bad for their brand, but also because many of them have realized that they have kids growing up who are sort of having their brains shaped and trained by all of this technology that their parents have developed. And one of the things I would encourage people to do is to make use of certain kinds of tools that are available to us, like turn on the, the switch on your iPad or on your computer or on your phone that tells you every morning how much time you spent on that thing yesterday right? And, and just be aware of that. And then say to yourself, okay, what didn't I get done yesterday that I wanted to do? Right. Um, you know, and I think there, there are undoubtedly coaches of various kinds that can help people do this, but it's also um, differently from, from, I would say, alcoholism and drug addiction. There are particular tools that you can use that can help you rejigger the reality of your life. You know, if, if in fact you spent 10 hours yesterday on your computer in chat rooms and you believe at the end of the day that you spent the day with your friends, you're wrong. <laughs> you know? but, but that's not the kind of thing you can become aware of unless you sort of say, oh my God, 10 hours I spent right. yesterday on Reddit. Is that, is that for real? And, you know, when was the last time I called my sister? Okay, so um, to press the food analogy, to press the food analogy, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, yeah. you're, you know about politics, right? You, you, you have, a, you have, and and you would say that most of us have are, are getting unhealthy or unbalanced political input, like right. in terms of our understanding of the world around us, we are getting information that is algorithmically chosen for the wrong reasons. Like, right. if I want to know what's really going on in the world, like, right. Help me. What do I what do I read? Like which websites are good? 
What what right. should I be listening to? Like help me. Right. Help me. Okay. So so I would say take a look at what you are reading and adjust it. Like several years ago, I adjusted my reading to include the National Review. Um, a, l- a little bit after that, I adjusted my reading to include the bulwark. Um, you can now actually get that kind of reading delivered to your desktop um, b- via Substack or other kinds of newsletter that will direct you back to the sites for the, for the articles you want to read. Um, but say to yourself, what am I reading and what is it I'm not reading? Um, and actually ask for some help. I act, I think the bulwark is terrific. Um, I enjoy reading. Now when you say terrific, um, you mean like this is a reasonable, thoughtful, but way more conservative than you are outlet. Yeah. I mean, actually it was started by never Trumpers, um, Bill Crystal, um, when the weekly standard shut down, they kept the digital arm going and turned it into the bulwark. Um, so they are conservatives. Um, they are never Trumpers, but they care deeply about conservative ideas. Um, and so I actually think engaging with the ideas of conservatism, I would recommend that anybody who really wants to understand American conservatism and hasn't read Friedrich Hayek's Road to Serfdom is undereducated. And you should do it immediately. <laughs> um, not only because it will teach you something about what people believe, which often doesn't show up in newspaper articles, right? They're often speaking in a kind of shorthand um, because you know these are these are much more complex and deeper ideas. But the other thing is to understand why people are attracted to it, even if you're not, you know, like one of the books I love teaching is Barry Goldwater's Conscience of a Conservative. And I have always taught mostly liberal students and they read Conscience of a Conservative and they love it. And they love it because Goldwater is so specific about his ideas and what he believes. And, you know, as, as we moved closer and closer to the present, I started teaching this book in the 1990s you know, students will contrast that with today's political world and say, you know, this guy Goldwater, he was so upfront about what he believed. And even if I disagree with him, I know what I'm disagreeing with because he's so clear about it. And you look at the political world today and that's impossible, right? And so that's the kind of thing I would urge people to do. Go back to texts that are important. Conservatives should actually um, you know, read read some of the early books of the 1960s. Um, you know, if if you don't believe in climate change, um, read Silent Spring. Um, if you if you feel like people who are poor just need to pick themselves up and dust themselves off and walk away, um, you should read some. You know, Cloward and Piven um, about about poverty and and welfare. And so, you know, there are original texts that will actually explain to you how we got where we are. And I would say to people, you know, I've gone back to reading actual books. I almost never read on the iPad anymore. I find holding a book in my hand um, slows my brain down um, in, in ways that make me more receptive to what's there. All right. What I'm wondering is like, you told me that when you were in the car, you listened to some podcasts of like the, like, what was it? Um, Laura Ruben? Ingram and, and yeah, 
was a biggie for me. Ben uh, Shapiro ben is Shapiro. another biggie. Yeah. yeah. Um, w- w- would you say I should listen to those people? Well, I would. Um, I, you know, I think they represent a certain kind of thinking in America that in, in many ways they're steering. Um, but what, what I actually found most interesting about them, and I started listening to them after I heard both of them deliver key, keynotes at CPAC, um, is that they are very attractive to young conservatives. Um, young conservatives um, or people who are pretty far on the right um, think of them as kind of beacons of, of the successful people they want to be. You can't understand that unless you listen to them. And, and I remember sitting there at Ben Shapiro's keynote at CPAC, and the room was just like full of college students all wearing MAGA hats and so on. And they were just going nuts over him. And honestly, I would have to say he was one of the best speakers I've ever heard in my life. And all of a sudden I had this thought, you know, all of those campuses where kids are trying to bring Ben Shapiro to campus and the administration won't let them. What if it's not a big ideological struggle after all? What if those kids who want to bring Ben Shapiro to campus believe that if their friends heard him speak, they would be better understood? Right? What if what if they are just absolutely sure that this charismatic guy could really persuade their friends that they're not crazy? You know, and that's that was just kind of a a new thought for me. So I started listening to them, and and partly it's back to being a teacher. I want to be ready if I've got that one conservative kid in the class. I want to be ready to teach that kid. And and what's interesting is is that I I kind of want to echo you in saying I would say that it's important to try to listen to the best and clearest and most winsome voices on the other side rather than mm-hmm. sort of going like well I listened to an hour of rush so I you know I got, you right know, <laughs> I, I, you know, right I, that I think it's really important I, I think they call it in 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 sort of intellectual conversation intellectual dark web circles um, steel manning the opposition yep and and that yep. is first of all listening to the best voices and then articulating back and saying the best version of what you've heard and asking somebody who believes mm-hmm. it and go like, am I getting you right here? Um, mm-hmm. and, and so that you're not straw manning, you're not attacking uh, the, the, the most crude and the most sort of base version of the other ideas, but that you're really, whether this is about faith stuff or about political stuff, um, that it's just really important to listen to the yep. best voices that you can find. And yep. uh I agree. I agree with that. And then you won't end up being the person on a rowing machine saying, I can't imagine why anybody would be against abortion and realizing that you have just said one of the stupidest things you could have possibly said, <laughs> you know? All right. Well, that, that, that's, that's a great way to close the conversation. Like the, the, the goal is not to be, not to be, that, be that person. Don't be that, right. don't be that woman. Um, right. Exactly. That's great. <laughs> but, the, but the other lesson is you can fix it. You can fix it by realizing that you were that woman and actually you need to reach back out and be another kind of person entirely. Yeah. And that the there's power, a reward the in po- that. The power of an, in, the, in this conversation in, or in, in this moment, the power of coming back and going like, I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. Right. I went too far. Yep. Like the power of yep. an apology um, to 
it's sort of like when they say when you break a bone and then it repairs back, it's stronger than the bone was originally. I really feel like in these relationships, making a mistake is is a problem. But when you come back and fix it, it actually is better than if you didn't make the mistake in the first place a lot of the time. Yep. I agree with you completely. And I would also say humility counts. Um, And I would say asking people what they think and really wanting to hear it. You know, it shouldn't just be a rhetorical flourish. What do you think? Yeah, it's funny. If you ask someone that, you you have to know. I will tell you, like one of the things that like we hammer, I hammer in my, in my, in all my public stuff is this idea of worldview humility. Um, Mm -hmm. and the idea is not just like, oh, no, I'm not better than anybody else or, you know, everybody has, it's just this idea of, I really do think I'm right. And I think these ideas are better. So like, don't get me wrong, but I'm aware that I didn't adopt these ideas primarily because I saw how right they were. Mm-hmm. That I adopted them because of where I was raised and who I who my teachers were and what I was lucky enough to read. And like, so even if I am right, I'm I didn't become right because it was right. I became it for all these other reasons, which is the exact same reason why the person on the other side became what they are and think the way that yep. they do. And it's just the humility to say that, like, even if I'm right, I don't get a lot of credit for that. Right. Right. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, no, that, that's that's a great way of putting it. Perfect. Yeah. So it's wonderful talking to you. Thanks so much for taking the time. Hey, my pleasure. I'm so glad you guys reached out to me. This was a lot of fun. All right, that was me and my new pal, Claire Bond Potter. And I hope you liked it. And I, you know, in thinking about politics and speech and First Amendment and all of that stuff, I thought to myself, I wonder what the grand old man Ingersoll had to say about that stuff. And in my wandering through the magnificent Ingersoll, I found this one. With every drop of my blood, I hate and execrate every form of tyranny, every form of slavery. I hate dictation. I love liberty. What do I mean by liberty? By physical liberty, I mean the right to do anything which does not interfere with the happiness of another. By intellectual liberty, I mean the right to think right and the right to think wrong. Thought is the means by which we endeavor to arrive at truth. If we know the truth already, we need not think. All that can be required is honesty of purpose. You ask my opinion about anything. I examine it honestly. And when my mind is made up, what should I tell you? Should I tell you my real thought? What should I do? There is a book put in my hands. I am told this is the Quran. It was written by inspiration. I read it. And when I get through... Suppose that I think in my heart and in my brain that it is utterly untrue. And you then ask me, what do you think? Now, admitting that I live in Turkey and have no chance to get any office unless I am on the side of the Koran. And by the way, he was writing before Turkey secularized. So it might might be better if I said, you know, now admitting that I live in Afghanistan and have no chance to gain any office unless I am on the side of the Koran. What should I say? 
Should I make a clean breast and say that upon my honor I do not believe it? What would you think then of my fellow citizens if they said, that man is dangerous, he is dishonest? Suppose I read a book, I read the book called the Bible, and when I get through it, I make up my mind that it was written by men. A minister asks me, did you read the Bible? I answer that I did. Do you think it is divinely inspired? What should I reply? Should I say to myself, if I deny the inspiration of scriptures, the people will never clothe me with power? What ought I to answer? Ought I not to say like a man, I have read it, I do not believe it. Should I not give the real transcript of my mind? Or should I turn hypocrite and pretend what I do not feel? and hate myself forever after for being a cringing coward. For my part, I would rather a man would tell me what he honestly thinks. I would rather he would preserve his manhood. And, 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 and understand, like this is written in the late 1800s. By manhood, he means humanity. By man, he means man or woman or person. I had a thousand times rather be a manly unbeliever than an unmanly believer. And if there is a judgment day, a time when all will stand before some supreme being, I believe I will stand higher and stand a better chance of getting my case decided in my favor than any man sneaking through life, pretending to believe what he does not. There you go. There you go. That's Robert G. Ingersoll, and I'm Bart Campolo, and this is Humanize Me, and I'm glad we're together. See you next time. For more on Bart, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at Humanize Me Pod on Twitter and Humanize Me Podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search Humanize Me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. Hey, you could be larger than life, bigger than the world, living out the hopes and dreams of every boy and every girl. Hey, you could fly higher than the sky, shine brighter than the stars. You can live for you ever want Oh,